we just finished a series on uh, all the stanzas of Psalm 119. And so just covering all of those aspects as David is writing in that longest psalm in, uh, in the longest chapter, I should say, in the scriptures. And talking about how it, uh, different aspects, aspects of it sort of give you glimpses into David's life. And from that, I just kind of want to, this morning, kind of give you sort of an overview of David's life. And why it's so important to look at David's life. And we're not going to go through Psalm 119 this morning. We're going to go through a different psalm, which is Psalm 18. Uh, yeah, you can be thankful. We're not going to spend uh, time going through 176 verses. Uh, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit. Because I want you to see uh, just how connected the scriptures are. Uh, and just how they give you a really good uh, sort of glimpse into what God is doing, even when it's not very explicit. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. So in Psalm 18, Psalm 18 is one of the most famous psalms. Uh, it's a psalm that actually comes at the end of David's life. And I, I say that because it, we know a lot about David. He's probably one of the most famous characters in the scriptures, right? You could, if you asked a, a, little, uh, a little kid in Sunday school or something like that who their favorite Bible character was, David would probably be pretty close to the top, uh, especially because we know a lot about him. There's a lot of just famous stories uh, involving David. We know about the time when he saved his flock from, uh, from animals that were ambushing them, or we know about the time especially uh, of him fighting Goliath. Uh, that's a very just famous story everyone knows. We know about him uh, as he was running away from King Saul. And he spent the majority of his early life running away from that man who was trying to kill him. We know about his ascension to the throne eventually as king of Israel. We also know, of course, about his sin with Bathsheba and his, the cover-up with Uriah. Which I think is interesting because uh, as much as David is famous and, and honored and revered, he has that giant black mark on his life. Yet he's still remembered very favorably and very fondly. And I think that's true for uh, many different reasons. Uh, but I think uh, especially among them is just the fact that David's life had a very significant purpose. God was purposely doing something, yes, even through that really, really dark time of that sin and that horrible sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But I think we honestly, or we mostly remember David, I think, just for his immense work in the Psalms. And you can see his faith. And I also like to say that you can see his honesty. This is one of the things that I love about the Psalms. Because they're very, very honest in what David is feeling and going through and what he is dealing with. The Psalms are uh, very explicitly um, honest, uh, vulnerable expressions of this man of God. He was uh, not afraid to sort of just bear his soul as he was praying and confessing to God. We, we can read these as really lofty, and they are. They're very high and praiseworthy lofty psalms, but they're also very deeply guttural and emotional uh, verses and lines. I, I think, well, I'll just read a couple of them to you because, like, just to give you some instances of this. When David knew that he had messed up, he let God know. 
I think of this comes, this Psalm 51 comes right after uh, he has been made to see his sin by the prophet um, Nathan. And he says in Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He knew he had messed up, and he let God know that. Also, I think of another famous psalm, Psalm 100. Here in Psalm 100, I think you kind of can see just... When he was confident and he was worshiping God, he let God know that too. Psalm 100 verse 5. He says, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. Or uh, let me take you to some other examples. Because also what I think is most uh, prevalent in the Psalms is that when life life stunk, he let God know that too. He wasn't afraid to tell God, hey, what I'm feeling right now, I I don't like it. (laughs) Or Psalm 27, verse 9. Psalm 27, 9, he says, Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When he was feeling abandoned, (laughs) he let God know that. Don't hide your face from me, God. Don't turn away from me. Don't forsake me. Or when uh, Psalm 100 verse 1, or excuse me, Psalm 102 verse 1. Here he's sort of expressing this idea that he doesn't feel heard. He feels like God isn't listening. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face far from me. In the day when I am in trouble, incline thine ear unto me, and in the day when I call, answer me speedily. Here he's feeling as if God isn't listening to him at all, and he's expressing that. Or in another psalm, one of the most gut-wrenching psalms, Psalm 13. I'm going to read all six of these verses in Psalm 13, because when he feels absolutely dejected, listen to what he says. He says, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemy say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. You can see even there, that's a really good one. Because it gives you all of sort of the aspects of David's emotions there. He feels uh, forgotten. He feels unheard. He even questions God. Will you forget me forever? It's it's the honesty and vulnerability of this Man after God's own heart, so to speak. And I think that's what reaches out and strikes me most. And such is why when we read these verses, let me read a couple of verses from Psalm 18, the, the main sort of uh, passage I want to talk about. Because here, Psalm 18, listen to what he says in the first couple of verses. He says, I will love thee. 
O Lord, my strength, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about the snares of death prevented me you can see he was overwhelmed and yet he banked on those first three verses who his god was why because he had learned it through experience you can see those first three verses of psalm 18 they sound like a person who has gone through a lot of stuff and they've learned what that this god is the one who is going to sustain him throughout all of his days They sound as if one has gone through a lot of really dark times. And he's found that this God, he will call upon him. And he's worthy to be praised. Why? Because he is all of these things. That this God was with him through thick and thin. Think about this in David's life. He had learned this through experience. If you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he's anointed by the prophet To be the next king of Israel. And what happens? He's not making. In the next chapter. It's 1 Samuel 17. He kills Goliath on the battlefield. And then in 1 Samuel 18. Saul becomes jealous of that. Let let me read you that. Because it's interesting how quickly this turns. So 1 Samuel 18. He has just killed Goliath. And listen to these words. This is verses 8 and 9 of 1 Samuel 18. And Saul was very wroth. He was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. He was jealous of him. For all the acclaim that David was uh, getting after that day, after that amazing victory on the battlefield against Goliath, Saul is jealous. And he then tries to kill him. 1 Samuel 19, it says this, And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David, even to the wall with the javelin. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. (laughs) So he goes from being anointed to now he's on the run for his very life, away from the very king whose throne he would take the place of. And he goes on the run after God's anointing of him. So he learns through deep hardship and experience who this God was and how God would sustain him throughout his life. And such is where we get to Psalm 18 because Psalm 18 is actually, if you just, you can kind of go there if you want to or flip back and forth because Psalm 18 is actually a copy of 2 Samuel 22. It's almost word for word the same. I think what... 
in, in my opinion, this is kind of what happens, is that 2 Samuel 22 is sort of the original version of what David sang and expressed. And then Psalm 18 has sort of made it to where the whole congregation could sing and worship. As you know, this was their worship book, essentially. And so uh, 2 Samuel 22 is David's words. And, you know, I don't always put a lot of... of um, a lot of uh, weight into those little prescripts to the Psalms. But if you have those little words that say, you know, like to the chief musician or whatever, uh, before Psalm 18, my Bible at least says this that these are the words of David, the servant of the Lord, who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in a day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And really what that means is it's not just like one day. He's recalling all the times that God had delivered him. He's remembering all of the seasons in which he had existed. All the seasons of doubt and grief and despair and discouragement. And how God had delivered him from all of those seasons. Such is why, again, he can say in verse 2 of Psalm 18 that the Lord is my rock. Why? Because he was remembering all those deep, dark times. All of those deep, dark situations. They reflect that this God is a God who delivers him throughout all of his life. Notice how he closes Psalm 18, verse 46. The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock. And let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God that avengeth me and subdueth the people under me. He delivereth me from mine enemies. Yea, thou liftest me up above those that rise up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, while I give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and sing praises unto thy name, great deliverance giveth he to his king. And showeth mercy to his anointed, to David and to his seed forevermore. He's recalling all those times, those seasons of, of, of his life that were less than pleasant. He's saying great is God's deliverance. But I always have wondered what, what got David through those times. Why was David so certain that this God was going to come through for him? Why was he so confident and so assured that he could resolve on this God? Well, it leads me to another passage. And I know I'm taking you a lot of places, but I want you to see this because in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, I think we have one of the most, to me, it's one of the most interesting chapters in the Bible. So 1 Chronicles 17 this is nearing the end of David's life. And he comes out and he expresses a desire. He expresses this desire. Look at what he says. Now it came to pass, 1 Chronicles 17, 1. Now it came to pass as David sat in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the Lord remaineth under curtains. You know, at this time there was that tabernacle that had been put up and set down all the time as the wilderness people, as the pil children of Israel wandered throughout the wilderness. And it was still that sort of same sort of structure in which they worshipped God. And David sees this and he expresses this desire. He wants to build God a permanent house. 
I want to build you a house. I dwell in a palace, and God, the, the Lord, the Jehovah that is with us, he's still, as he says, under curtains. And notice he expresses this desire to build this house of worship. And look what happens. Then Nathan said unto David, do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. At first, it appears like the prophet Nathan is telling him, yes, this is what God's will is for you. You're going to build God a house. And look what happens. Verse 3, and it came to pass the same night... That the word of God came to Nathan, the prophet, saying, Go and tell David, my servant, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in. God denies him. God says, No, you cannot build me a house. You cannot do it. You are not the one that is going to do this. I think it's here. Uh... Yeah, let me keep reading. Verse 5, For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wheresoever I have walked with all Israel, spake I a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I command to feed my people, saying, Why have ye not built the house of cedars? Now therefore thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldest be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. There's a verse I want to get to. I think it's... Yeah. Uh, so in First Chronicles 22... <coughs> This is the verse I was thinking of. First uh, Chronicles 22 verse 8 really gives the reason why David is not allowed to build this house of God. Look at what it says. But the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build an house unto my name because thou hast shed blood upon the earth in my sight. He was a man of war. We know this from David's reign. He is, his kingship was full of battles and struggles and scandals and conflict. So God tells him, no, you can't build me a house. You're not going to be the one to do it. If you keep reading before that, though, in, the, in chapter 22, what's fascinating to me is that even though he's been told no, watch what David does. He's been told, no, your plans, they're, they're going to be scrapped. You are not allowed to build this temple. But look what happens. In 1 Chronicles 22, verse 2, it says, And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. He, and, and he set masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gates, and for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians, and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Isn't that fascinating? He's told no, but David continues to work and strive and struggle to prepare a house. Guess what? A house he will never get to see. And he makes preparation for it. He makes all of the necessary arrangements for Solomon to complete this work. 
a work which he would never get to see the light of. And why is that? Why does David push into this? Even after God tells him no, why does he persist in this? Again, I think it's this amazing promise back in 1 Chronicles 17 that God gives him. Look at, look at, listen to these verses. This is verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 17. It says, And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, this is God speaking, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee an house. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. Of course, this is speaking about Solomon directly. Of course, it's talking about how Solomon would be the the son to come after David and build up the temple, which we know he does. And he makes it, as David prophesied in the the chapter we just read, chapter 22, that it was exceeding, as the King James has it, magnificent. It's an amazing structure, that first temple that Solomon builds. But I think we are also meant to see that these words are pointing to, uh, intending to suggest the fact that this is the promise of the son of David that would come through David's line. It's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the true and better son of David, not Solomon, the true and better son of David that would be of the house of Bethlehem, the city of David, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, as it says in Micah. Be the true and better son of David who would build David a house. A house that would last forever. That regardless of whether the stones be brought down by all these raiding armies, this house would be established forever. Why? Because it's established in God himself. And what God was going to do through David's family. It's not just he was going to raise up Solomon. He was going to raise up a savior. He was going to raise up a true and better king. Not just a king over this small point in the timeline of human history, but a king that would redeem all mankind from their sins. You can see that. I love how it includes there in that verse. um, Verse 11 where he says, I will raise up thy seed. Reminds me of Genesis 3 verse 15. If you remember, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it really quickly. Genesis 3.15, the promise right after the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And what does God promise? I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, but thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is the promise of the son of David, the true and better son of David, who would come. And yes, he would build David a house that would be established forever. It's the house of David. It's the church. It's the family of God that would be established through David's line, through David's family. This is what he's promising David. You want to build me a house? I have a way better promise. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a place of dwelling. 
It's way better than any construction project that David could have accomplished. And this is the everlasting reign. Look at verse uh, 16. And David the king came and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is mine house that thou hast brought me hitherto? <laughs> He's struck by this promise. And let, go all the way to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23. So we come to the end of David's life. 2 Samuel 22 is the copy of, of Psalm 18. And then look at 2 Samuel 23 verse 5. Because this promise is on his mind. Look at what he says. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although, although he make it not to grow. You see, he's, he's remembering this covenant, this promise of God his Father, who says he will not be able to make God in house, but this is a better, way better covenant. That God would build him in house. Which brings me all the way back to Psalm 18. Why? Because I love the words he uses in the middle. So Psalm 18 why does he press on? Again, he has this promise of the true and better son of his own family that would come and be the king, the Messiah, the Christ. Listen to these words. Look at verse 7 of chapter 18 of Psalm. Then the earth, or let's read verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God, and he heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even into his ears. And then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also. And came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub, and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. And the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed. Hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered. At thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. I love these words. They're poetic. They're beautiful. They give you all kinds of amazing images in your mind of the type of divine intervention that David experienced. Stay right there, though. I want to read you some verses that I think go along with this of another time. Another time when the earth shook and the mountains quaked. 
Listen to these verses. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Says this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Let it be. Let us see whether Elias will come to him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. I don't think David is prophesying necessarily of that moment, but it's reminiscent of the same. Of the type of deliverance God gives and does on behalf of sinners. The type of deliverance that Bends the heavens. Remember that verse in, um, in Psalm 18 verse 9 where it says he bowed the heavens. He bends them to deliver us. He shakes earth and heaven and shakes and quakes mountains to save us. That's the type of deliverance that we have. It's the type of deliverance that David was promised that would come through his true and better son the type of deliverance that we have in the gospel too because the promise that is given to David of the true and better son of David that would come and save man from his sins is the same promise that's given to you and I that will deliver us and sustain us and save us from all of our sins and sustain us through every single season of doubt and anguish and fear and grief that we go through in this life it's the same promise the same God the same deliverer The one who is great in deliverance. He's giving us the promise. That yeah you want to have big glorious grand plans for God. He has a better plan. He has a better plan for you. He's going to deliver you from every single season of suffering you endure. Why? Because he's already made the ultimate sacrifice by bending heaven to deliver you. That's what I love about David's life. He was looking forward unto that day when the true and better son of his own family would come and bring about that true and better deliverance. He was looking forward unto it. We can look backward. We look backward unto that day when these earth, when these rocks were shook and the earth quaked. And we were delivered from all of our enemies. This is the God that we have. A God, as David confesses, is his rock. Again, Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Why? Because he had promised to deliver him, and he did. 
This is David's assurance. This is your assurance too. This is David's promise. It's your promise too. It's the promise that we have. It's the promise we are made to live by. And it's the promise I strive to live my life by. That we have this faith of David. That we would look backward onto that day when these uh, rocks were made to shake. And we would look forward onto the day when that true and better deliverance would come for us. The day when we will be with him forever. This is the faith of David. This can be your faith too. Let us pray.